You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Because if we are just reacting from a subconscious place, the human brain is so fascinating, then it's it's largely not your fault. And it's not to make excuses and let you off the hook for it. It's just so you can have some compassion for yourself and just say like, hey, you're trying to survive. Your brain is really just trying to like burn the least amount of calories that it can <laughs> in order to keep you alive. That was Andrea Owen, returning guest, good friend, and the author of Make Some Noise, Speak Your Mind and Own Your Strength. In this episode, she joins me to talk about the unlearning we all need to do to start speaking our minds. But the majority of this episode is about how challenging this is to do for women and why that's so. Along the way, we also discussed the difference between allowing yourself to go through your own inner process and making things weird for other people. A quick note, neither Andrea nor I are gender essentialists and we're speaking to sociological norms. We recognize that not all women are socialized or present the same way, and neither are men. Also, let's call this one PG-13 and maybe not safe for all work environments. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Got my professional face on. You've got your professional face on, and we are recording. Andrea, thanks so much for joining me for another round of conversations, this time on Productive Flourishing. Last time I was on your podcast. That's true. Yes, I'm happy to be back. Always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Always. I am really excited about your new book. I have had the privilege of hearing the um, behind the scenes of the book now for maybe a year, maybe longer. Maybe longer. Yeah, I think it's been longer. Right. So it kind of feels like one of those things I've been watching grow in a way. And then when I got the book, I was like, yes, it's awesome. Because I wasn't an alpha reader. I was just an alpha listener. Um, and so, um, so, so excited to be here. Um, as I was reading the book, I was like, on the one hand, this is a different voice from Andrea. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, this is the firecracker voice that I'm used to. Um, okay. Like on a personal level, you mean? Both on a personal level, but also in your previous books, right? Okay. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's like you took a a richer turn this time than you have in the past. So tell me, tell us a little bit about the the trajectory of this book from How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. Okay, it, it's a bit of an interesting one. You know, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit came out in, in 2018, and I, I wrote it in 2016, because that's how books happen. And if everyone remembers, you know, 2016 was the year of some, I don't know if I if social change is the term that I'm looking for, but definitely com- conversations that needed to happen for a long time that were starting to happen. And then in 2017, we found ourselves in the Me Too movement and Time's Up. And in 2018, with the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, for, I, I can only speak for myself and many of the women that I spoke to, those years were emotional, 
um, and also eye-opening for, for many of us. And so that's sort of where the percolating started with this, this book. And I had been thinking about it for years before that, just, you know, the creative idea of it, but where it started to solidify was when I started thinking that in the women's empowerment industry, I know we're speaking, we're speaking to a mixed audience here, you know, but specifically the vast majority of my clients are people who identify as women. I, as a leader and a coach and an expert in women's empowerment, felt like I could not sleep at night by telling women, you know, raising my fist and saying, girl power, and, you know, you can do anything, you just have to change your mindset, which now the term for that is toxic positivity, which I have been guilty of in the past. But I needed to start talking about more and write a book about the culture that raised us. I am obsessed with getting to the root of the problem. I want to be as efficient as possible. And um, which is what brought me from talking in the beginning of my career about negative self-talk into shame work. And then now almost coming completely full circle to talk about this this, um, culture that raised us. Because if we're talking about, and I'll, I'll end, I'll end this this rant with, with this. I figured out that if we're talking about women's empowerment, we're talking about feminism, and if we're talking about feminism, we're talking about patriarchy. And let's get really honest: if we're talking about patriarchy, we're talking about white supremacy, which isn't a conversation I dive into the book because I am not qualified and point people to to better authors and experts around that. But that's really sort of the big picture of what my mind went through when I decided to write this book. I appreciate that. And, and it's one of the things that I noticed more in this book. And I don't know if it's because of our, you know, um, conversations via polo and just the ways we've been hanging out that I didn't notice and how to stop feeling like shit, but there was definitely much more of a um, directly sociological bit to your writing mm-hmm. in this one. Um, and you know, as someone with my background in philosophy and Angela's in, you know, with a PhD in sociology, those ground so much of our work, right? We can't separate that body of work and those, you know, those ideas from the work we do, which sometimes is very weird because, you know, teaching productivity in our culture, you always have this dance with white patriarchal characteristics, right? Because to be successful in the workplace, you've got to dance in a certain way. Um, you can't tell people don't do that because then they're not going to be successful. Right. But you can't say just do that because that's going to push them further away from things that might really matter to them unless they're really in that sort of scenario. So I saw a lot of that, those convergence points in their work. And that's what I appreciated about it. It's like, okay, we're getting to the root of things. We're not dancing around any of these issues anymore and not trying to make people comfortable with the conversation because it turns out this making people comfortable with the conversation is making a whole lot of other people not enter the conversation and not feel welcome to be who they actually are. Exactly. Right. And I didn't know that for a long time, you know, with the, the privilege, the, the massive privilege I have walking around in my experience as a white cisgender, straight, able-bodied woman I didn't realize that for a long time. And it was, for me, it was around 2015, you know, being called in by actually one colleague of mine and, and, you know, having a reaction to it and how dare you tell me what I need to talk about and what I need to learn about. And, and then really opening my eyes and, and reading more 
and 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 not just that, but realizing what that had to do with this industry. And you know, some people might say, "Can't can't self help just be self help?" And I'm like, "No, it can't. It it's directly related, and it's it's something that now I you know I can't unsee it, and I can't turn my back on it. So it's going to be a conversation that I continue to have from here on out. Like, it's not I, I can't just cherry pick." when I'm going to talk about it, depending on my audience and making them comfortable. And oh, what if they don't believe the same things I do? Then go find another coach who does surface level personal development. They're out there. Well, yeah, we, my view, I think we share this view is we can't talk about human thriving without talking about the things that are keeping them from thriving. Right. Very well said. Um, and if really, if that's really what we're about in personal development with different languages and different sort of things, but we're all talking about living your best life, thriving, like all those types of things, you know, it seems to make sense to think what's keeping people from doing that. And let's perhaps not blame their character and let not blame them for everything. Let's not make it about what it's How all about they're what they're doing without looking at the system in which people are having to navigate and negotiate their lives. Exactly. And, and it's, um, yes, we're definitely on the same page there. And, and it's, it, and again, it's one of those things where I just really wanted to figure out what, what's the fastest way to peace. Like <laughs> what's the, and, and I, <laughs> I don't mean to simplify a very big conversation and, and, and social issue. And at the same time, I just, I think this needs to be talked about more in in the rooms of personal development like i'm fascinated with why people behave the way that they do like i love you know reading cultural anthropologists and social psychologists and even I'm, i've been really interested lately in in the different generations and why we behave the way that we do in our intimate relationships as parents you know i was raised by both my parents are from the silent generation. I'm a Gen Xer raising Gen Z kids. Like these are very different <laughs> ideologies that we grew up in. And it's, it, that's the kind of stuff fascinates me to no end. And also I love when I can bring it into the work that I actually do to help people. Yeah. There was a line in the book where you mentioned that um, so much of what we absorb is kind of like, you know, grandma's baking, uh, grandma's cooking, cooking recipe, yeah, like her banana bread recipe, yeah. <laughs> her banana bread recipe. Thank you. Um, but at the same time, we also inherit our grandmothers and grandparents mindsets and sort of ways of thinking about money and sex and relationship and things like that. It's like, we don't just get the banana bread. We get all the rest of it too. Right. Right. And so when you were mentioned just about this generational transmission, right, um, that really fascinates me, too, because um, as I wrote about in Start Finishing, so much of our head trash is not even our own head trash. It's like our grandparents' head trash. But it's still working on us. Like, we don't ever, like, just because we can say it's head trash or it's a bad mindset or it's toxic, whatever, we still need to have that moment where we say, and... I know it's not true. Mm -hmm. I know it's not mine. And yet it's still working on me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So, okay. So many directions I, I want to go with that. And it's, it's been fascinating, you know, as you know, watching my mom get older and, and her being more willing to have conversations with me and, and really, I love that you said, you know, what's mine and what's, what's not mine. 
One thing I it, you made me think of when when you were talking is my, my therapist. I recently had to hire a new therapist in in 2020, which probably many of us did. <laughs> Took our happy asses back to therapy, and she said she said humans something to the effect of humans are just you know walking around reacting subconsciously over and over again. And I was like, oh my gosh, we we are, we really are. And it's what the thing that has helped me the most, one of the things that has helped me the most is starting to notice when I do that, starting to notice when I am reacting subconsciously, whether it's it's um, having a, a feeling when I read a comment online about my work or you know, when, if my husband says something sort of like offhandedly or in a, in a discussion that we're having and, and I feel immediately the need to be passive aggressive or sarcastic or walk out of the room, which is one of my favorites too. And just like, if I don't have anything smart to say, I'll just walk out of the room and try to get the last word as I walk out the door. You know, why am I doing these things that are getting me farther away from the person that, that I want to be? And also this is an important addition to that is not making myself wrong for it. Because if we are just reacting from a subconscious place, the human brain is so fascinating, then it's it's largely not your fault. And it's not to make excuses and let you off the hook for it. It's just so you can have some compassion for yourself and just say like, hey, you're trying to survive. Your brain is really just trying to like burn the least amount of calories that it can <laughs> in order to keep you alive and reacting from this lizard part of your brain a lot of the time. and just. Just get curious. You know, that's one of the one of the best tools I learned in my coach training a decade plus ago. And if I could leave anybody with anything, it's just to get curious about why you're acting and reacting the way that you are. Don't make yourself wrong for it. I love that you put that because, you know, a lot of times when we ask why, it's kind of like we hear our parents' voice and they're like, why'd you do that? Right. And that's sort of accusatory why, but that really like, no, like what led me to that place? Right. And just from a neutral sort of observer perspective, not from that, like, I did something wrong uh-huh. um, sort of scenario. And it, it's funny, timeliness of all these conversations. Um, we are going on a vacation here in a few weeks. Um, and Angela was looking for cat sitters on Trusted Pet Sitters or whatever website yeah. we use for that. And she came and she was like, Charlie, I have something to share and I'm super embarrassed about it. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. She's like, I've noticed how judgy I've been about some of the like perf profiles and things on trusted cats that are like, I saw this person and I thought that, and like the person we ended up going, she's like, got a Mohawk and she's like a punk goth rocker. And Angela's like, no way in hell is she going to be good for our cat. Like he's quiet. He's kind of sensitive and things. So she's like, nope. But then this person sent this lovely note about like she's a she's a writer and she's really quiet and she loves shy guys and things like that. And she writes this like perfect note. And then Angela had this wonderful conversation during the, the getting the note process. But in that moment, she was like, I I'm I'm like ashamed of how judgy that I've been about some of these and all my biases about this. And I'm like, so we all have biases though. Like we all have those things that are in there. You caught it. You know, you caught it. (laughs) You know, it's not representative of the world. So what's, I I couldn't really understand what her shame was about, Mm -hmm. about the impression and, and, and having that. 
I was like, we're a wash and cultural bullshit all day. Like we're going to pick it up. Right. Despite our best efforts Mm -hmm. and it's just this constant muckraking to get it out of us and to acknowledge it. But I think if we had more, so we had many great conversations about it, but I was like, I didn't understand that sense of shame when you realize like I had that thought, but that's not actually what I believe. Right. Right. Um, there was a feeling it was lizard brain. It was impression. Exactly. As you said, it's my brain doing everything it can to make snap easy judgments. Mm-hmm. Right. Overcoming biases, no matter who you are, is like a day-to-day thing, whether it's ableism, whether it's, you know, ideas around neurotypicalness, whether mm-hmm. it's ideas around, you know, race, gender, the gender spectrum, religion. Like we, I think we have a lot of reckoning to do. Um, in our country, not, I mean, I'm going to sound weird, but like, I think us having conversations about people can be people of faith, but not be this, the stereotypical thing that they're made out to be, or people can be people who don't have faith and they're not who they're made out to be. Like we need to be having those conversations again, because things got super oversimplistic and divisive. Therefore that four year period that you talked about, and we're unraveling this now. Well, it's sort of, you know, I I think it was a reaction and it's, it, it, the way that I look at it is, is sort of like, like if you look at a pendulum, you know, and the pendulum for so long stayed on one side and that is misogyny and patriarchy and, you know, it's just sort of the way things were. And yes, there were different conversations happening in, in, in circles around the country and around the world, but for the most part, the quote unquote norm was a certain way. It's just the way we do things around here. It's just the way it is if you walk around as a woman. It's just the way it is if you're gay or disabled or poor or whatever. Get mm-hmm. used to it. <laughs> and then I, you know, when when 2016 happened, I think that there was just sort of like a whiplash, if you will, like this sort of. I I don't mean to use such a dramatic example here, but like a car accident of just like, oh my god, this is who we are. And, oh, this is what's happening in the workplace. And, oh, this is racism. Like, I think for so many of us, the, the, the veil was finally lifted and the pendulum swung so far the other way. And nobody felt like they could do anything right, especially if you were someone who... Who, who did have a lot of, of privilege. And so there's, there's all these sort of like ripples and reactions that happen. And so then a lot of people who have some smart things to say and want to learn, they stay quiet or they, it just, it was sort of a mess, a little bit of a car accident, if you will. And I think now in 2021, we have the pendulum is starting to kind of hopefully come into the middle where we can have these candid and vulnerable conversations that are so necessary for us to unpack decades and centuries of quote unquote, the way things are and the way things were so that we can move to a different place and and have real social change. Yeah. I I get the sense from even from people who would rather not be in the conversation anymore, that there's a lack of optionality to be in it now. Right. (laughs) Where it's, you know, maybe three, four years ago, it's like, eh, we could really not be in that conversation. Like, mm, that one seems hard, but now we're just like, well, like it or love it. Here we are. Good right? luck opting out. Yeah. Right. My, my in-laws were visiting 
a few months ago and my, my mother-in-law read a, and my, my in-laws are both retired, recently retired. And she read, she said that she had been reading some cartoon that said something about boomers and how, if they're, if they're not ready to have the conversation, especially in the workplace, then they need to just retire. And, and I'm like, it's funny. Cause it's true. <laughs> Things need to change. Yeah. Well, it's this really interesting thing, Andrew. Um, it's it's kind of like when we hear people talk about like a neutral marketplace and the invisible hand in the marketplace, and we should not guide it with values in different ways, right? They're like, if we just let the market do what it's going to do, then things will work out. I'm like, that itself is a very deep like framework, or that's a very deeply held um, ideological position. Right, that's a given that you've accepted as given. That now that we're questioning that given, you're frustrated <laughs> that you know we're wanting to change. It's like, well, duh, it's a given. The marketplace is neutral; like things are going to happen. It's like that is not a given. <laughs> that is not a given. And um, I think as we're having some of these conversations, like a previous generation of workers um, had some givens, right? Mm-hmm. That just like you know we didn't need to talk about these things, and like if we just you know, don't see color, then things will be fine. Right. Right. And those I'm given. still going to get my pension when I retire. We don't have to be active co-creators of the culture that we're in, right. Our work culture, like we can just sort of show up. That was a given. Turns out not, a, not, not a like given. those things led to certain things. You know, like Andrew, you know, I'm right, working on my next book. And one of the things that I'm pushing people to remind is like, you are actively participating in your team's culture. Like if there are things you don't like and you just go along with it and you never try like in your small team, not necessarily at the corporate level, but in the four to eight people around you that you work, if y'all keep doing the thing that everyone hates and everyone just does that, guess what? You are reinforcing the very thing you don't want. Mm-hmm. It's not a neutral thing. So you have an option. Keep doing the thing that you hate and never say anything about it or say, hey, it seems like none of us like this. Why are we doing it? Yeah. So, well, you're doing oh, go ahead. You're making it worse one way or the other. Exactly. And, 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 and like, if, if I could kind of like zoom way in on that, I have an, an example that, and, and I've been out of the, the corporate world for a long time, but like my very first real job, if you will, I was 22 years old and I worked um, for, I was an assistant buyer for a chain, a large chain of retail stores on the West Coast. And I was, um, they paid me $27,000 a year. It was about 1997. So, um, but I remember realizing one day I was there on a Saturday. I was in the office on a Saturday. I was one of the only people working on a Saturday. And I took out a calculator and realized that with the amount of hours that I was putting in, I was making less than minimum wage. And it did not occur to me that I could renegotiate. And I had been in that position for probably like four to six months that I could renegotiate my job description. And thus get paid more money. I just put the calculator away and was pissed off. And just, you know, my mentality was, I just need to pay my dues. (laughs) Good old meritocracy. I need to pay my Mm -hmm. dues. I need to stick it out and just deal with the the borderline abusive things that were happening there. And then I could get, you know, make it to be a buyer and hopefully get paid six figures and have this life that I imagined. But I, I, that's one of the things that I noticed, and again, taking it to a much smaller scale is, is that 
I didn't even, as a 22 year old young woman, I didn't realize that I could speak up for myself and have this difficult and vulnerable conversation. I was very well aware that I did not have power. I was too young. I didn't have the experience. And I was also a woman. And that was completely subconscious. I didn't know. And that's what I'm hoping that will happen now is that we're having these conversations and not that people should feel entitled, but sometimes it's like, it's obvious. Like if you're overworked and not getting paid enough, yeah, there needs to be a conversation. Well, there needs to be a conversation and who initiates that conversation, right? Because there's also in that very same scenario, it's like, well, I'll work hard. And then someone around me will be like, you know what? You're doing a really great job. We should give you more money. Um, that sometimes happens. Yeah, I was uh, hoping that would happen. That did not happen to me. <laughs> more often, like it comes up at you know, like a performance review or there's some calendar thing or there's something that like is a forcing function that's external to the person doing it. Like there, let me put it this way. There are some fantastic managers out there. y'all. I'm not trying to mm-hmm. say managers and leaders don't do this. Um, and when you really understand that values aside, sort of, you know, deep cultural things aside, everybody in that type of culture, everybody's busy. Everybody's grinding. Everybody's just trying to get it through the weekend, which just is Sunday if you're lucky. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they're not necessarily thinking like, oh, how am I going to take care of Andrea? She's been here four to six months and she's working her tail off. She's like, how are we going to get this stuff done? Because if I don't get this done, my boss is going to be on me. We're humans trying to survive. Right. Um, And I think I think you and I have talked about this. If not, we're going to talk about it now. Um, When it comes to a lot of the struggle that women have, it's the waiting for other people to take care of their needs. Mm-hmm. and understanding that that day might not ever come. Yeah, it's it's tricky because in some regard, we are, <clears throat> excuse me, we're brought up to expect other people to kind of rescue us. There, There's that story that some of us have. And then there's also the conditioning and socialization that we receive that we are not to make anyone else uncomfortable you know, the biggest word that I probably repeat so many times in this book is, is accommodating. Like we are, we are raised to be accommodating to everyone else's needs and ours are last and that we do not make a fuss. You know, one of, one of the biggest shame triggers when I work with women is they're worried about being perceived as needy to the point where they don't make hardly any of their needs met. Again, to the point where they are struggling with insomnia and anxiety and depression. And, and of course, those are all very real things that have other reasons that people have them. But, but when we are putting ourselves last and not speaking up for ourselves, those, those other physical manifestations are exacerbated. And it's not as easy as just telling someone, just speak up for yourself. Just go out there and like, you know, tell, tell your partner what you need. They, and, and it's, it's, it's so much more complex than that. And I don't mean to, to scare people or say like, it's so much hard work, you're in for it. But it's, it starts with this unpacking and unlearning, if you will, of, of the conditioning and socialization that you've received, and just getting curious about it. And this is not to blame and shame our parents, because they are humans who were also raised by humans, and they did the very best that they could. And at the same time, 
sometimes it was crap. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it was total crap. And it's up to, you know, as adult people, now it's up to us to get whatever help that we need, whether it's with this book or a therapist or your partner or whatever, so that you can unlearn all of these unconscious reactions <laughs> that we're doing that get you farther and farther away from your values and the person that you really want to be. We've been dancing quite a bit around unlearning. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the things you talk about in your book. And um, what I loved is that there are four steps. So kind of walk yeah. us through those steps. And um, I'm, I'm piggybacking this on the hard work aspect of this. And I just want to, I'll, I'll take the, this is hard work side of the conversation. So you can be the, the guest. It doesn't have to do that. Um, but what I will say for all of us is we're already doing hard work. Yeah. It's just we we've accepted that some of the hard work that we're doing is the way that it is, um, and it's our status quo. And so, if you're already doing hard work, I think what Andrea and I are both asking is like, maybe you can do some hard work that actually gets you closer to where you want to be. Uh, right. So learning four mm-hmm. steps bring us into that. Well, like any good self help book, I wanted some people to have a process. I love a process and it's not the end all be all, but I, I wanted people to have some kind of framework where they could think about these really big and sometimes complex topics and, and think about what that might look like in their unique life. Cause it looks different for everyone to do this on learning. And, and if, if people walk away with nothing else, this is what I want them to do. I want them to just really think and get curious and uh, instead of like taking big, massive action. If you, if you're ready to take big, massive action, I'm here to cheer you on. So the four steps are, the first one is to pay attention. And like, you you can't, um, you got to name it to tame it. I mean, that's a, a common saying in our circles is just to pay attention to, you know, for, like what, what happened with Angela, like pay attention to when you are having these judgments about certain people. So that's a, that's a great example. The second step is to, is to get curious. Why did I, did I, think that way? Is it because I grew up in the eighties where punk rockers and goth people were shown on TV as being like devil worshipers? Like who knows? Like <laughs> That's probably where my judgment would have came from. Uh, and then the third step is to, is self-compassion because sometimes when we get to that place of paying attention and curiosity, like you said, happened to Angela, she was beating herself up over it. Like I should be more evolved. I should, you know, not have these bad, it's bad to judge other people. Like you are doing your best again, unconscious reactions happens to everyone. And then the last one is to keep the momentum. And many times what that looks like is having conversations. So she did a very fantastic job by coming to you and talking about it. And you are someone she trusts and knows that she's not going to be met with well, you're an idiot. <laughs> so if you're having conversations, make sure it's with the right people, people you trust. And, um, and yeah, so that's just a very quick whip through of what those four steps look like. Yeah. Um, since I put Angela on, on the spot in this one, I'll put myself, um, Andrew, we haven't talked about this one yet. And I'm, I'm sure this will be follow on conversations, but, um, okay. We have recently decided, well, it's more of an experiment slash decision where, um, there's like a bunch of like, house stuff that we needed to do, like, you know, painting some walls and just a bunch of BS. And I'm like, Angela, I'm out in this time. I'm like, I would much rather pay someone to do that. Right. Than to spend all of my weekends during the summer doing that. It's not, not, not here for it. 
So we made a list, but we decided that this time around we wanted to hire um, women like handy, handy folks. Right. Okay. Um, and so it's been amazing. I'll start with that. Um, but I was like, this is going to be very interesting for me because like noticing all of my internal reactions that like I've got um, women in the house doing like craft work and things like that. And that felt weird. It was like, why does that feel weird? Like this mm-hmm. is like, this has been something that's been going on for a long time, but like also noticing when I'm like, seeing them carrying a ladder being like, do you need help with that? I was like, I would That's never what I was gonna ask, ask you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I would never see like a, a bunch of guys working in the house and they're carrying a ladder and be like, Hey, do you need some help with that? Actually, that's not true. I do do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's really, am I doing it because it's a woman or am I doing it or because she's a woman or am I doing it because like they're actually struggling with a ladder and checking motivation. Then so it was just like this very weird sort of process of going through this unlearning of like, okay, like, let's see how this goes. Like, Charlie, don't be weird about it. Right. But also like try to be yourself in this scenario and also unpack all of your BS about what, you know, and this is, you know, because I've been working and around powerhouse women all of my life, right. Between just all the things you and I've talked about between cheerleading, how I grew up prior to that, the clients that I work with all the day, my teammates, like um, powerhouse women are just like what, what show up. And so I'm used to it, except for in this context, I was like, Hmm, I don't know how I'm going to feel about that. What's that about? Right. Um, It was amazing. I don't think we're going back. Right. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm just saying um, such a different energy and vibe around the house. Like, um, in so many different ways. So probably a conversation for another day, Andrea, or another conversation with Andrea on the podcast, but <laughs> well, I want to um, say, can I jump in really quick and say something yeah. that you said that kind of jumped out at me is, and, and maybe you need to clarify, but like, I'm in the camp of like, it's okay to be weird about it. Like, mm-hmm. and, and not weird. Like, don't, don't say anything, like try not to say anything to the women, but like, I don't know if that's what you meant, but like, of course you're going to be weird about, I would be weird about it. Like I, I would have feelings of massive discomfort around it and that's okay. That is part of the process. Like I am such a huge fan of giving people the dignity of their own process. You, mm-hmm. And this is like one thing that I have been so adamant about teaching my children who are only 11 and 13, but they've known from when they were very little is that you're never wrong for feeling or reacting the way that you do your behavior, you need to be responsible for. So if you say something nasty, or if you are, if you hurt someone, then you need to clean up the mess. That's a different conversation, but you're never wrong for, for being a certain way. And, and like, that's, that's what I've, I wasn't raised like that. I wasn't taught that at all. And that is one of the very specific things that I want to teach my children, as well as the clients and everyone listening to this podcast is like, if you're weird about it, that's okay. Just just think about why you might be weird about it and have, have a conversation yeah. with somebody. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification. The weird about it was weird in behavior. Okay. Right? Um, you know, so like, don't be over chatty. Like, like, don't be over like, we're super excited that you're here. Make it weird that way. <laughs> and also don't be the guy that hides from them the whole time because it's just so awkward that you can't deal with it. <laughs> right. Um, and so like, don't pick either of those ends, Charlotte, like just try to be somewhere in the middle. Normal, right. Yeah. Be awkward uh, in the middle. <laughs> be, yeah. Be awkward in the middle, but don't, you know, don't do all those types of things. And so like, 
that's what I meant by don't be weird about it. And I'm sure uh, you're not the first customers of theirs who have felt that same way. No. Um, but we're going to be recommending, recommending like crazy. So one of them was already booked for a long time. And then we had to, we found another one that was a painter that she's trying to get started. I'm like, you, you got a job, yeah. which we're going to recommend. Five stars on Yelp. <laughs> yeah, five stars on Yelp. Who, who do I need to call for you? Right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so it's just that that's so the don't be weird about it. And that's what I was kind of telling Angela in, in my in, in our own way about how her reactions is like, look, you had it right. But like, don't let that script the relationships that you might be forming with these people so much that like you either shut it down. Right. Because this is like too awkward and it's strange on that side or you make it so weird for them to be them that then mm-hmm. they feel awkward being them that, that, so, um, so yeah, I should say, don't be weird. means just try to be normal. Like it's just a normal yeah. person coming in and doing a job, like do, be your angry. Best to be normal. do your best to be normal, have whatever shit show you need to have going on inside about that and whatever writing you need to do, but that's on you. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Love it. Yeah. Um, the other thing I love about your book, many things I love about your book, um, but you talk about one of the big taboos, actually, which is money mm-hmm. and, and their money. Um, you clearly have a lot to say about this. Um, you wrote a chapter about it mm-hmm. and you have more coming about it. Why was it so important for you to include money in this? I felt like I couldn't talk about this topic around, you know, quote unquote, making noise, which is about speaking up for yourself, et cetera, without also addressing money. And I have not written about money in my, in my two previous books, you know, partly because I'm not a financial expert. Um, and I was also going through my own stuff with my relationship with money and also capitalism, you know, like, I'm like oh man, am I going to, am I going to talk about this? So it was, it was a very interesting journey to write that chapter. And, and what I focus on is it's just, it's fascinating again, going back to like why people behave the way that they do. And there was a 2016 fidelity study. So this is recent and that, that was naming some stats around, and I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember, but, but it was, and probably to no one's surprise listening to this and, and how women tend to not talk about money and they tend to not invest because they don't know about it. And they tend to not ask about it. But statistics show that women actually are more successful when it comes to investing <laughs> than their male counterparts. And so I'm like, why is this? And, and the answer is, is, I think, obvious to a lot of us is that it's, it's typically been a quote unquote man's job to handle finances. You know, e- even if you grew up seeing your mother or you are the, um, a woman who, if you're in a, like a heterosexual relationship, where you take care of the bills. Usually it's up to the man. Again, I'm speaking very generally here to do the investing and talk to any financial advisors and investors and things like that. I remember I was at, I was at our community pool a couple of summers ago and I was I was you know watching my kids swim and there was two dads that were having a conversation about their investments. And I thought to myself I have a never had a conversation with any of my friends about investments and B I have never heard about, I've never heard two women having a conversation about their investments. So I started to talk to my friends about investments and it was incredibly empowering. And so these are the types of things that I I talk about in there. And and yes, I'm talking about specifically women's relationship with money, who who, like everything from you, who were your role models growing up around wealthy women? Were they self-made or had they inherited it or married 
into money. Um, and, and even in the media, I tell the story in the book about looking back on the very first character in a movie or book whom I knew was a self-made millionaire was Cruella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians. And she skinned puppies to get her money. And some people might say like, it was just a Disney movie. Does it really matter? And it absolutely does. Like these are the pictures that are painted for us as young children about what is okay and what is not okay. And I was five years old (laughs) understanding what it meant for a woman to be a self-made wealthy person. So these are the types of of things that I'm talking about in that chapter. Well, and I really loved your um, point. And I didn't know you had this post about um, babysitters asking um, for. I got to push back on that. Yeah. yeah. So tell us that story because I found that fascinating too. Yeah, I did too. So it was several years ago when we had just moved to this area and I had, I had, um, started asking around for babysitters. So my husband and I could go out and have date night. So I got a few names and I was either calling or texting these teenage girls to, you know, ask them if they could babysit. And every time I, I so I, I probably maybe half a dozen contacts that I, that I had of these, these girls. And I would say at least four, probably five of the six, when I asked them, how much do you charge an hour said, Oh, I don't know. Whatever you want to pay me is fine. And I, I only noticed because that was the majority of the answers. And I thought, can I just tell them I want to pay them $2 an hour? And like, that's going to be fine. Because if that was my daughter, that would not be fine. Like, no, 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 no. And it just got me thinking, like, did my parents ever have, because babysitting is a very common first job for girls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was for me. And, you know, did my parents ever tell me how to negotiate and what I should be charging? And no, never. And so I, I posted about it on Facebook. And my point was, we need to have these conversations with our daughters. We need to have her understand what her value is. Is she bringing toys over to play with the kids? Because they love that. <laughs> is she offering to clean up or fold some laundry? If so, her rate is going to be higher. And and there, and a lot of people, most of the comments honestly were, I had never thought of it that way. That's a great point. But there was some pushback and some people said, no, that's disrespectful for a 14 year old girl to tell the adult how much she charges. And I was like, okay, boomer. <laughs> I disagree. Yeah. yeah. But it starts that young. It starts that young. And I had, um, you know, especially given where I grew up and, and what I was into, um, I straight up, you know, when we were raking leaves or cutting grass or you doing whatever sort of manual labor things that we could do to make money, like it wasn't like, hey, pay me whatever you want to cut your grass. Like, it's fine. I'd walk around the yard, be like "Eh, about thirty five dollars. Right. That's what it's going to cost. And they'd be like, I'm not paying that. Like, okay, great. And then I go to the next place. Right. Um, Or something like that. So it's like, that's strange. I've never been in a situation to where like. It, I wasn't in a job that either had a certain amount of given wages that go with it or that I didn't name my rate. Um, and it was actually that section of your book that had me thinking about um, some of the coaching that I've had, especially with people in our academy and my female, and my female clients, because I'm like, look, the way we socialize men and women is dramatically different in this one in that we train men and we train boys to initiate and sort of put what the value is first, right? As opposed to wait to be picked 
and then have that value sort of stated for them. And in this situation, I was like, oh, it starts at babysitting. Well, it starts earlier than that. But it's like, mm-hmm. this is where when we're talking about entrepreneurial clients and are having this whole existential crisis about raising the rates, right? Which is always there, right? I've noticed two dramatically different existential crises from my male clients versus my female clients, right? Um, and it comes back. Like, I didn't really tie it to babysitting until I read that. I was like, oh, they're used, more used to that conversation where guys might be more used to, they like, oh, this is a $40 yard, right? Right. It's what it is. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Like, and also infuriating. It's infuriating. <laughs> it's infuriating. And, and oh, there's a couple things I want to, I want to point to. Um, there's research. I mean, there's a lot of research that, that looks at how we socialize boys and girls from the time they are very, very young toddlers on the playground in elementary school. Typically boys are encouraged to roughhouse, to tease each other back and forth. Um, and, and, you know, girls are, are not taught the same thing, but what that instills in boys is resilience. And, you know, boys are, I forget what the research said and, and what it was that, that is taught and encouraged in boys that makes them feel entitled. Um, but it, you know, where that, that ends up being a good thing for them is because, and also more research shows that men are more likely to negotiate their very first salary out of either high school or college. Um, for their very first, you know, kind of like real job out in the real world, they're much more likely to do that than than women are. And that could equate for hundreds of thousands of dollars over time, over the entire span of your career. And like, this matters, this matters so much. And um, I do think that things are changing slightly. And I also want to say that when there was a young girl who, when I asked her how much she charged, there were some, there was been a couple where I felt like it was a lot where I was a little taken aback, but I told her, I said like, good on you. Like, I just want to say how amazing it is that you told me how much you charge and said it with confidence. And I was always really curious. I'm like, who taught you that? (laughs) Was it your mom? Was it your dad? Like, um, they had different answers and that's what I want for, for the future generations. And even women who are our age, who are still struggling with that is just that it's not a big deal. And for it to be not a big deal, you either have to learn it really young or really do a lot of this unlearning because it is awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, well, we can go a long way on this whole pricing and value thing, but I think that's what I'll say briefly is, um, what you charge is not your value. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a fundamental co-equivalence that people have. Like I charge that. So I'm worth that or I'm worth that because I'm charged. That's like, you're worth far more than whatever you're charging yeah. as a person, as a human, as your expertise price is a signal of what the market's willing to pay and what you're willing exactly. to ask. Exactly. Thank what you it for is. saying that. I always hated that advice. It's, it's very 2013 advice. <laughs> charge yeah. what you're worth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know what's being said, but I don't think um, I don't know that a lot of folks saying that know what's being interpreted. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we need this. We need to update that to be able to to say that. So I do believe people should charge for the value that they bring, but mm-hmm. the value that they bring is still not their personal worth. You know. Yeah. The, those things are separate. Anyways, I'm getting okay. semantic here, but um, wanted to go there. So, you know, you have a long list of things to start doing and stop doing in your book, and 
I'm going to ask you the question you know that I love. You know, you know that I ask and I know that you love when I ask it. Um, is which of those are the most challenging for you to practice? Um, probably the, I think it's chapter nine. Um, and the title of it is stop ignoring the brainwashing that we all got, which is sort of an overview of the entire book. And I went back and forth with my editor about making that the very first chapter. Cause it seemed like it should be. And we decided not to because it's, and I don't even think it's heavy handed, um, but it, it is the most specific around our culture and how we've been brought up. And I'm also very vulnerable in that chapter and tell a story about, you know, how I got entire, just so tired. <laughs> I get so tired of patriarchy. Uh, and I didn't want to scare people off, if you will, especially who were newer to my work. And I didn't want to open with that chapter. So we decided not to. One more specific reason as to why that's the hardest for me is the internalized misogyny piece and just coming to terms with how much it has infiltrated my mind and my life and the way that I behave and the way that I think and the way that I judge. Um, there's so much work to do still. And that's probably, that, that's my answer because there's still so much work to do. Mm. Um, how are you working on that? You know, I, I honestly like use, go figure, I, I take my own advice. I use those steps that I talked about and just notice when I, you know, one thing I mentioned in the book is, is for a long time and how I dehumanized um, women who were sex workers, you know, strippers, adult film actresses. And that is from my own upbringing of, you know, fairly strict quote unquote, you know, purity values of, of, you know, the Christian faith and, and purity culture and, and that, you know, our worth is dependent on how much we keep our, our virtue and our virginity and like those types of mm -hmm. weird things that, that that's how I grew up. And so just noticing if I ever still do that. And, um, and just also, you know, my husband left his job in like right when the pandemic hit and it was, it was something we had planned for a long time. And we had some very frank conversations about gender roles and all of, Oh, that is complicated. I mean, that is, that is a conversation <laughs> for all other podcasts. Yeah, and, and also I just want to say this too, for anyone who's navigating that conversation, especially if it's with an intimate partner is to not make, again, not make the other person wrong for it. And I, I, I preface this like with almost, because it can be, it can feel very touchy. And as someone who's, you know, been discriminated against and, and been, you know, a, a person who's, who's been on the receiving end of sexism a lot, it's easy for me to get fired up and angry. And so just like telling my husband, like, again, this isn't about you. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the system. <laughs> And, um, we're just having a conversation. And so we've had to be very candid with each other, but also tread lightly. And it's been interesting. It's been great. It's been really great, but it's been also been interesting. There's a saying in the army that generals are always fighting the last war. Right. Wow. And I apply that to so many of these conversations because you'll spark something and the person that is 
you know, lit up and on fire about something, they're not actually fighting you. They're fighting the last war that they went through. They're fighting the last thing or the, that last moment of sexism or racism or, you know, homophobia mm -hmm. or, or whatever it was. Being stereotyped. Yeah. All of that. Right. Mm -hmm. All of it. They're fighting that. And you just showed up looking like that last thing. And maybe you did do something that you need to work on. I'm not trying to, not trying to absolve you of that, but just understand that a lot of that intensity can be at you, but there's also this broader war that they're fighting, right? Mm -hmm. That you've now become a part of. Um, and yeah. so I use it from that perspective, but also use it from like when you're that person that's lit up is that person that did whatever they did. They might not be that person from like 20 years ago that did the thing that got this all started. And it might not be just this, you know, continuation of this long campaign that you've been on. They could just be this person that did something human and dumb because yeah. we're human and dumb. Um, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Um, and how, um, you know, without dampening what you're doing, without, you know, silencing yourself to not make some noise, but how do you at least understand it as you're making some noise that there's also that context too. And mm -hmm. it's hard. Being human is hard sometimes. It sure is. It really is. It's, it's amazing and hard. It is. It is. So Andrea, as the guest to today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation, depending upon which one resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do within the next week? Oh, I could have so many invitations. I, I love invitations. I, based on what we've talked about, I invite people to think about anything from, you know, the, like what we just talked about, the gender roles and, and how that was modeled for them, whether they like it or not, like what is still ingrained, uh, an invitation to think about just your conditioning and your socialization. This is not just a conversation for women. Men are 100% conditioned and socialized to be a certain way. Some of those ways serve them. Many of them do not. And like I say in the book, patriarchy hurts everyone. And um, that's what that's what I invite people to do. Just think about how their socialization and conditioning is, is not working for them and what they can do to change it. All right, Andrea, as always, wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for being here with us. Okay, listeners, so you heard it from Andrea. Think about how your socialization and the way you were raised and all of that stuff from the past informs who you are and how you behave and whether it's working for you. Now, between now and next week, what can you do to start really owning your own story and owning your own truth and living from that place? Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.